the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, an interview with Sasha Kutuba Sarago, author of the new book, Jiguru. The book's title means beauty, or beautiful, in Jurabal, the language of Sasha Kutuba Sarago's grandmother. The author retraces her own footsteps as a beauty assistant, a model, and a magazine editor to find answers to key questions in her life. Through conversations with her matriarchs and the creation stories gifted to her, Sarago unlocks an ancestral wisdom and the key to healing and reclaiming her femininity. This book invites us to explore the interconnectedness of Aboriginal culture to resolve our relationship with beauty and ourselves. Sarago spoke with Readings' programming manager, Christine Gordon, about her life and her journey to writing this first book of hers. Here's Christine. Hello, everybody that's joining us. My name is Christine Gordon, and I am delighted today to be talking to an author who has written her first book, Jaguro. Ah, it's such a beautiful, beautiful word. And tell our listeners what it means just to start us all off in the right frame. Yeah, so Jaguro means beauty or beautiful in my grandmother's language, and that's the Jitabal tribe in far north Queensland. So we are the Wabawada people, the rainforest people, and our traditional country ranges from the lovely, rich, lush rainforest from the Daintree right down to Tully, just before you get into that, you know, dusty, dry Townsville, but we love Townsville too. But you've got quite an interesting background, actually, because you come from this gorgeous lush sort of area but you have a father that's from elsewhere yeah so my father is african-american and you know that's a bit of history where you know Historically, we were part of the transatlantic slave trade, so brought over from the motherland to the U.S. So that part of my ancestry is still a mystery, but it's been a wonderful journey living here in Australia and being able to reconcile and learn more about my African ancestry through the African diaspora, the beautiful African-Australians that have embraced African-American culture and people as part of that community. So it's always been part of a, a mystery for me. And so that's why the saving grace was having my mother bring us back to Australia. So I had that connection to my First Nations culture and having the concept or the connection to country, which has been, you know, such a pivotal moment and has been something that shaped me. And you will definitely get a sense of that when you read Jaguru. So this book is sort of quite extraordinary because it's part manifesto, if I can use that word that's used in the introductions, and part your story, your sort of quite unique story of growing up, coming from these two different cultures and meeting somewhere in the middle. Why did you write the book? Why is a book like this important? I think it was a really good time. I had struggled with the concept of beauty my own beauty for so long. And that started with being a beauty assistant in my mother's beauty salon, you know, that first step into the world of beauty, you know, how to make women look and feel beautiful Mm -hmm. and looking at myself as being a young girl. And that's always one of the most challenging journeys when you try to figure out, you know, your own femininity, what is beauty and you define that definition of beauty through you know images 
you know, through your matriarchs, through things that you witness on TV. And so even that's a complex situation that you're dealt with as a young person. And then, you know, that fascination and that love for beauty, you know, being in a beauty salon and then having a love for modeling and fashion. And that was courtesy of these beautiful black supermodels that were taking over the catwalks in the 90s. And that was Naomi Campbell, Tyra Banks, Veronica Webb. And for a young Black girl to see that, you know, those imagery of these fierce Black women and their beauty just commanding, you know, predominantly white space was just mind-blowing. So that gave me the permission to believe that I too could get into the industry. And so that's where the love for fashion and beauty started. But then it was like the the perils of being a model, particularly a black model in the industry and realizing, okay, something that I love and I want to be successful in doesn't quite happen for me in, in that way, as opposed to, you know, European models that are really successful. So it's just this journey of having a love for it, but then also having, I guess, self-hate or, in, in, you know, internalized racism and all these complex issues when it comes to beauty and to come out at the end of it. So it's a coming of age story that I think everyone can relate to depending on their story, their own personal story. So Sasha, this book that you wrote, is is it in a way an attempt to align that young woman that you were, that young girl that sees these fierce, extraordinary women? And you have tried to make the steps all the way you know, from being this child, being this young child, all the way to being this woman in the modelling world and so much more, can I add, but we'll get into that with the conversation. But, Tasha, is that why this book is important, so that you could make those connections between that young girl and those models that you saw? Like, is that what you were aiming to do with this story, your story? It was a journey of, you know, how we start off with our journey with beauty you know, what gives us permission to feel beautiful or how do we identify or what makes us think that particular thing is beautiful? I love this. What makes us think what is beautiful and what isn't beautiful? Mm-hmm. Some of the descriptions that you have in your in your book, in your story, sort of blew my mind as, as a white woman who's never had to face some of those sort of microaggressions that you've had to face on this entire journey. For the sake of our listeners, can you explain, and I'm sorry to ask you, like what a microaggression is and how insidious that type of effect has on someone that's looking to these beautiful women and hoping to be part of that? Yeah, so the microaggressions are those lights that you just feel it in your spirit that you feel less than, you feel like there is no space for you in this industry or, you know, it can really just come down to, for me, I guess in modeling, it was the microaggressions of, you know, being relegated to the sides of fashion shows and photo shoots because no one wanted to to touch me in a sense of they didn't know how to work with my black hair and skin. So there'd be Australian makeup artists who didn't learn how to work with black hair and skin and or didn't have the foundations for my complexion, which is unnerving. And, you know, it forced me to bring my own makeup to shoot, having to do my own hair and makeup and just that level of unprofessionalism. But that's like a norm in the industry for black models. 
And do you think that's improving now? Like I know that in your book you talk a little bit about how some people like Rihanna have revolutionised makeup and made it much more accessible. Do you reckon that has improved or do you reckon we're still pretty crap at it all? We have improved, but it's still crap. Yeah. For us to still be talking about this in 2023. It's appalling. Is is a clear issue there. And, you know, hopefully we have gotten better, particularly in this country. Um, But you still hear the horror stories, um, even in international fashion stages, where you'll have someone on TikTok or on Instagram posting a story of like, this is how my hair (laughs) started to look like. And this is the, the end result. And it still doesn't look you know, half as good as any other model who's hitting the stage. So, yeah, we still have a long way to go. But I think, you know, writing about the Rihanna's of the world is an example of how we can do it. There's no mm. excuse. It's just catering to a broad spectrum of people, shape, sizes, skin tones. It really isn't that hard. That accountability, that's all we're asking for. Oh, I, I think that's right. Some accountability. I was very moved in different sections of your story because you write in a very clear way. It's to those that are hearing us speak right now, the way that you can hear Sasha talk is how she writes. It does make her experiences very accessible. But also as a, as a white woman reading this book, you know, I, I became even more distraught about the sort of the the lay of the land that we're in now because you do systematically talk about racism and microaggressions and the sort of the fierceness that you've had to have in your heart to get you through each stage of your life and when I talk about each stage like we really are talking from from being a, a young young kid all the way through adolescence all the way through you know, falling in love, not falling in love and making your way. It seemed to me that there was heartbreak and anguish, in a sense, at every crossroads in your life. Absolutely. But the beauty of that is that it got me closer to my own sovereignty of loving myself through seeing and creating a definition of beauty on my own terms and not through the lens of you know, a lover or through an industry, through people's expectations and perceptions of me. You know, when you hit ground zero, (laughs) there's only one way to go. (laughs) And for me, that was up. And to really feel that pain, it really forces you to look in the mirror and go, you know what, I'm, I'm tired of feeling like this. I'm tired of my sovereignty being in the hands of others. And, you know, I talk about anger as well, of owning my anger, you know, whether it is, you know, not feeling like I could own that, being the eldest child and, you know, being a type A personality or, you know, playing by the rules of society. You know, I've gotten to a stage of my life where I'm comfortable in my own skin. I'm calling the shots and, you know, you're either on my team or not. And it was through those experiences and coming into my own womanhood and Mm. saying, you know what, like, The way that we perceive beauty has always been, you know, for me, I speak personally, aesthetically, but as I embrace my womanhood and and come into that age of, oh, she's hitting her 40s, like this is the new 30s and, and all that beautifulness that, you know, you feel because you know yourself, womanhood is about wisdom. You know, I I feel so Mm -hmm. confident that I have these life experiences that shaped me. And I know if it's not a hell 
yes, then it's a hell no. There's no ambiguity here. You know what I mean? And really, you know, I talk about spirit and intuition and that's the guiding your, you know, your compass that leads you throughout these, you know, traverse, you know, complex, scary moments. But to come out from, you know, the end of it and go, you know what? I actually really like myself. Heck, I love myself. You know, that's liberating. You know, I think we get a little glimpse of that straight off in one of your descriptions of coming from America and you've grown up with this military sort of father and, and so you've all dressed with, you know, crisp white clothes and pulled up socks and you, and you arrive in Australia and your cousin, you meet your extended family and your cousins are running around the sort of the bush or the backyard in, in bare feet and you write so beautifully in this one passage where you say, hmm, you know what, I'm just going to own this. And you take off those white socks and your shoes and off you run. And it seems to me that that spirit, that spirit that just said, you know what, bugger it, I'm I'm going to just go over there and I'm full in. I'm not going to be tentative in any way. That seems to me the spirit throughout this book. But I was very interested in the way that you would talk about the way that you had to keep propelling yourself. But every now and then you would also talk about your ancestors or a story from your ancestors as a way of it sort of grounding you or describing the next stage that you went into. How important are those stories of of the land and the people around you? Yeah, that has been the foundation of who I am. You know, I have grown up with a strong matriarchal family. I've only seen strong black women who have really guided me, who poured into me. And so that's always been a source to go back to if I don't feel strong enough or I am searching for answers, it has always been there through a conversation. And, you know, that was part of my journey of getting back to self of, okay, I had issues of my cultural identity. So I needed to learn about my culture, speak to my matriarchs and listen to those stories. Mm -hmm. And that really helped me shape a definition of my femininity. And I talk about that in the book, Black Femininity. But then it's also the beauty of the creation stories of these amazing, phenomenal, you know, creation stories and the, the women in those stories, whether they embrace their anger and their beauty is personified with the creation of the landscapes, the beautiful movement of their dancing and expression you know, through stories like Broga or the, the anger of Ulana. And even our beautiful ancestors that have come before us from, you know, the staunch Barangaroo, you know, in the time of colonization, how she, you know, stood up for her culture and, you know, for the cultural traditional ways that she could see being lost in this new transition. But then to the beauty of, you know, a young feminine, young woman like Patagorain, you know, and then her journey throughout colonization as well and being, you know, one of the first named linguists in this country. So these are the stories that were, you know, hidden or not readily spoken about. But, you know, through this journey of the book and my own personal journey of unlocking that wisdom, that ancestral beauty that you don't really see. And when I talk about beauty, I had to ask my matriarchs, have you ever, you know, had a conversation or read a book that talked about First Nations women's beauty and wisdom in the same sentence? And so that was mind blowing to, to realize like this is a first in so many respects. And I wrote the book because I, I wanted to read a book 
exactly like this that is so complex, but it's a story that most people can relate to or can see themselves in these words. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, the audience for this book is 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 vast. It's really for anyone that cares about uh, personal journeys, but also about Black history, but also about the concept of beauty and your sort of ability to make sure that the beauty is inside and outside. That's the way that you seem to come through this whole entire story. When you started writing this book, I imagine there would have been a certain self-perception of yourself. What was your perception of yourself after you finished writing the book? Did it change the way that you describe yourself? I think I changed, not not greatly. It was mm. just recognising or, or acknowledging that I'm at this peace with myself mm. and writing about that peace and to finally go, yes, I can sign off on it officially. <laughs> it's in print. And the reflection of it was just amazing. It was, wow, like I have so much grace for myself now. There's no Fs given anymore. Like I've done the hard yards and now I just want to embrace my Juguru. I want to live the soft life. I want to learn more about myself. So it's just a gateway to, you know, living my life like unapologetically, all the freedom to discover all the parts of me that I haven't acknowledged or I haven't given permission for her to fly. And, you know, I speak about that in the last chapter. You know, you it's a love letter to myself. It's for my nieces. And it's encapsulating all the wisdom, all the things that I've learned. And now it's like, okay, this is a list of the things that I have to remind myself because we are never not learning or evolving. And sometimes we need to go back and remind ourselves that, okay, it's okay to give myself grace, forgive, dust yourself off and try again. But yeah, I I feel like this book has just opened a new arena for me to play in. The irony of this book is that, you know, the title is about beauty and, but it, in a way it's a call to arms. That's what I think of this book. We'd love to hear you read a little section, if we could, because it's such a treat to hear an author speak out loud the words that they have written and tortured themselves over for 18 months. (laughs) (laughs) And this will be the first time I ever read, so this is really special. So I decided, uh, I think it might be Chapter 6 of the book, and that chapter is Majal Joguru. I remember when Svet first waltzed into the shop, six foot four and slender, with broad shoulders, kitted out in active wear, and the longest vanilla blonde hair I'd ever seen. Svet immediately gravitated to Mum's artwork hanging behind me. What is this? I liked how Svet got straight to the point. It's called Brolga. In our language, we call it Guru. Guru. I picked up the storybook from mum's paintings. Would you like to read the story? Please, can you read it? Svet asked, convinced it would sound better if I read it. I obliged. Brolga was a beautiful young girl who loved to dance. It was taboo for women to dance in the old days because only men had this special honor. Brolga did not mean to break the rules, but her desire to dance overcame her body. And Brolga did the unthinkable. When the men started dancing, she joined them. 
making her people very angry. Brolga's grace when she danced was so remarkable. She eventually won the hearts of her people. Word spread fast of Brolga's talent, and many traveled far and wide to see her dance. Brolga's beauty also attracted the affections of many men who wanted to marry her. But Brolga wasn't interested in marriage, for dancing was her one true love. Her obsession for dance compelled her to practice every day, creating new moves to perform. Many men respected her passion for dance, except one selfish man who pursued her relentlessly. Concerned for Brolga's safety, her people told her to stay close by so that they can protect her from harm. Brolga obeyed her people, but while practicing, she strayed too far from the camp and an evil man captured her. The evil man demanded Brolga marry him. No matter how hard he pressured her, Brolga refused, which infuriated him. If he couldn't have her, no one would. Using his magic, he put Brolga to sleep. When Brolga awoke, she was no longer a girl. Looking down at her body, she no longer had hands. Instead, she had wings, her legs that of a bird. Although Brolga was sad, and thought she would never dance again, it didn't crush her spirit. Because Brolga's love for dance was undeniable, she mustered up the courage to at least try. Joy overwhelmed her when Brolga discovered she could still dance. For days, her people searched for her until one day, Brolga spotted them across the plains. Excited, Brolga raced towards them, but she was now a bird and her people didn't recognize her. Desperate to get their attention, Brolga began to dance elegantly as only she could. It was only then that her people knew the bird dancing before them was Brolga. From that day on, her people vowed to guard her against evil. And that is how Brolga, the beautiful young girl, became a bird. Gorgeous story, isn't it? Just about transformation and tenacity, I would think. Is that one of your favourite sort of creation stories? Oh, it absolutely is. And I remember as a young girl when my mom painted the beautiful picture of Brolga and I just loved how my mom illustrated the beautiful feathers and the wingspan of just her dancing in motion. And that image stays with me. So to be able to celebrate that story when I am celebrating my womanhood and how we fight, you know, for our beautiful passions and, you know, we never deny ourselves that which keeps us alive and lights us up. That story is really beautiful to me. Mm. It's very jiguru. There's this one little bit towards the end of your book where you say some of us as storytellers, artists, knowledge keepers and medicine people. Our talents are gifted to us by our ancestors. You do pose a question at this point. You say, when will society learn one size does not fit all? And that seems to be a recurring question that you ask of the readers throughout. So you do allow time when you're reading this book for self-reflection. That's something that I found. There was many times where I had to put your book down and really think about my own interpretation of what you were saying or my own reaction to what you were saying and to mind myself. So in that way, your book provides a valuable lesson. But I want to ask, 
you're so right that some of us are storytellers, some of us are artists, dancers. How would you describe yourself? What words would you use to describe yourself now that you are an author as well? I would say that I am a storyteller. I believe I'm a healer, a truth speaker. And there was one statement that popped into my mind recently, an abolisher of paradigms. That's who I am at the moment. You know, and it was in reflection of this book of, you know, what am I trying to do? I'm really trying to reshape the narrative or get people to think about them taking control of their story. And so that requires us to reflect on how society has set us up or how we've set our own self up. But also, you know, what are the new paradigms that need to be explored? Who do you want to read your book? Look, it was written in the spirit of a love letter to Black women. Um, so it's the the love letter that I think we need to hear more often. It's the acknowledgement celebration of the matriarchs that have, you know, really shaped who I am and many Black women, you know, here in Australia and across the globe. But it's also for, you know, everyone to actually pay homage and be able to celebrate the Black woman um, in ways that they probably haven't thought about or haven't had that experience. And hopefully Jabudu gives you that lens to, to see that beauty. But, you know, it is for everyone. You know, I even say it's actually for, you know, the the young father who is trying to have a conversation or are they having a conversation with their daughters about their daughter's Jabudu, you know, are we having an active conversation about, you know, what does beauty look like? What does it feel like? You know, how would you describe it? And, you know, are we talking about beauty and wisdom in the same sentence? So it's really one of those things where I'm just dropping gems or, you know, insightful questions for you to really take and run with it. It's, it's, it's however you define it, however you want to answer it. I reckon you've done it in the way that all great feminists have, where you put your own story first so that we can use that as a lens to reflect on our own actions. You're not frightened at all. There is no shame in this book. It really is about knocking down the demons one by one. On behalf of all the women of the world, whatever colours we may be, thank you for showing us a way to reclaim beauty. Thank you for showing us that beauty, of course, is a hard-fought case for us to feel like that. It's difficult. It's complicated. It can't be done by ourselves, but in the end, we're the only ones that can do it. I think that this is one of those stories that is going to stay with me for a long time, and Sasha, I really Thank you for your time in writing this book, but I thank you most of all for being frank, for being honest all the way through. If we don't have women sharing how difficult it is to be true to ourselves, then we don't really have leaders in that field. Is there any last comments that you would like to make to our wonderful listening community? Oh, my God, I'm just blown away. I literally have tears in my eyes. This is the first time I've talked about Jaguru. So thank you for holding the space for me. And, you know, I just really want those who are listening to realise that, you know, this this is only the beginning. You know, yeah. it starts with you. And you know what it is? It's about owning your truth, speaking your truth, going out there and embracing your Jaguru in whatever shape or form that means and looks like. Yeah. 
You're pretty amazing. Thank you so much for being with us today on the Readings Podcast. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Jaguru is available at all reading stores from February 28th and from our website, where you can also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. This podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded, and I'd like to pay my respects to elders of the past, present, and those to come. Thank you for listening.